This particular reading may sound very familiar because we had the same reading last week. Uh, don't worry, I'm not losing my mind or losing track. I just think it happens to be really important. And there are so many parts of this story that should be part of our life as church. You see, Acts 2 is an incredible challenge to, to many churches. It's a challenge because the writer doesn't tell us this is kind of an optional thing. You know, there's no footnote that Luke leaves us saying, look, if you're ready to move on to the master class, try this. <laughs> you know? It's put there with intention. It's put there as an invitation for all of us. And part of the reason I love Acts 2 is I've, I've seen it. I've seen glimmers of it. In, in other places, in other times in my life. I've seen, I've seen how it can work and how inspired it is, how filled with the Holy Spirit it is and how amazing it is and how much transformation is possible. It's real, it can happen. I've seen the kind of culture that's needed to allow this and it's not about money exclusively, although that's part of it. It really is deeper. The critical thing, the linchpin, is this commitment to pitching in together, to living together. And, and not just, you know, on a, on a Sunday at a service and not just at a potluck supper or, you know, for whatever church project we happen to agree with. It's for the long haul. It's for everything. Acts 2 is, it's just, it's a kind of church, actually. It's a culture, and, and before these apostles had pitched into this particular community, before they began sharing their lives and their money and looking after the poor and healing the sick and preaching the gospel, before all of that happened, something else happened. They surrendered to Jesus Christ. What does it mean to surrender? Some years back, we were living in Durham, North Carolina, and I remember there was a court that uh, court case that happened, and these these two um, teenage white boys had been convicted of spraying graffiti in a home and of trying to set it on fire. The graffiti itself was hate speech, which had been written all over the inside of the house, all over the walls. The home happened to belong to a Mexican immigrant family. And it was clear from the hate speech that the graffiti and the arson were tied to that being the case. And regrettably, in that time, in that place, there was a feeling among some people that these immigrants had come in and were taking jobs and, 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 and stealing livelihoods and, and moving into neighborhoods that they had no right to be in, which was all, of course, a false narrative. They were working jobs none of us would ever work, wanting to provide a decent life for their children. Fortunately, 
No one was in the house at the time. The father, Manuel, was working two jobs, and in the evening he'd show up on site to this house because it needed quite a lot of work. He'd show up on site with his brothers and his cousins, and they would go to work under spotlights, renovating this house. And it was Manuel who arrived at the house and discovered all the damage that had been done, and then some. In time, the police successfully apprehended the two boys, and the family was notified, and the police officer came to the house and interviewed them and, and asked them if they wanted to press charges. And Manuel and his wife Rosa turned to their pastor who happened to be in the room at the time, and they spoke for a while in Spanish, and then Manuel and Rosa turned to the officer and they said, we just want an opportunity to speak to these two boys. And the, and the pastor spoke up to the officer. He said, officer, let me explain. We've been having this conversation in our church for a while now about restorative justice. Restorative justice processes, you may have heard of these, are, are processes whereby instead of someone who's you know, been convicted of a crime, instead of them going to serve prison time or, or being fined or, or being given community service, instead of those things, they are offered the opportunity to sit in a room and have a conversation with the very victims that they victimized. And both parties have to agree to this. Now, it's not a normal kind of conversation. In this conversation, the convicted person sits down in the interview room with the victims, and the victims then take time to recount all their experiences, the whole history of the crime, and then they talk about how it made them feel. And when they're finished, and only when they're finished, then the person who's convicted has an opportunity to respond. So after some weeks, this interview was arranged. The boys were led into the interview room with a mediator, and there were Manuel and Rosa waiting. And the Mexican couple began to speak, and they talked about the hurt that they'd felt, how much of the time and the money they'd invested in this home. And now, with two young children, they literally had nothing. And by the time they'd managed to get all this, this out, Manuel and Rosa had been reduced to tears and sobbing, their children looking worried and holding on to them tightly. And then, and only then, when the talking had stopped and Manuel and Rosa were ready, only then were the boys allowed to speak. And over the course of the hour-long monologue, it was interesting to see their expressions change from, from, from frustration to anxiety to worry to anxiousness and finally to being upset. By the time it was their turn, all they could say was, I'm sorry. The mediator waited, and there was nothing more to say. She then asked Manuel and Rosa, what justice would you like to see done here? 
Is there a punishment that you'd like to see? Now, it wasn't up to Manuel and Rosa to set the punishment, but they had a say. And their advice would go back to the judge, and the judge would decide punishment. Rosa spoke up this time in a quiet voice. She spoke calmly, but firmly. And this is what she said. What I want to see here is for you two boys to go to university. I want you to go to university and I want you to get a degree. And I want you to get a good job. And I want you to raise families and live a good life and be fine, respectable men in the community. And I want you to make this world a better place. So things like this don't ever happen again. And those two boys buried their heads in their hands and wept. It was all the shame rolled over them. And there, right then and there, Manuel and Rosa prayed for them. And I bet that pastor tells that story to this day. You see, the amazing thing that happened was this. A wrong was committed, it was personal, and it hurt to the core. It was damaging to the whole family. It was damaging. But they gave up on going to court. Where they could have won a sizable payout. They could have won enough money to pay for the refurbishment and then some. They gave up on all that. They surrendered the power that had been given to them by the justice system. And they turned that power over to Jesus Christ. And by God, Jesus did something. He did something in that room on that day. And if you'd been there, you probably would have seen heaven and earth move in those people. And on that, that day, those boys surrendered also. They had a choice. They could have refused the interview, could have chosen to go to court, could have chosen to accept whatever punishment the judge decided to hand down. But they too turned that power over to Jesus. Now, when's the last time you turned your power over to Jesus? When's the last time you gave up on fairness and chose instead to pursue grace? When's the last time you did business with charity instead of defensiveness? It's hard. If you feel like you're constantly having to fight your corner, maybe it's time to surrender. If you feel like you're constantly having to fight other people for what you think is right, maybe it's time to give in 
to Jesus Christ. Because until you do, he can't finish his work in your life. What I mean is he can't heal you. He can't restore you this side of heaven. He can't bring you joy on earth. Why? Because he's not able? Of course not. It's because we won't let him. And at the end of the day, in my personal experience, the biggest surrender you will ever have to make in this journey with Jesus is the privilege and the power of being right. But I'll tell you one thing. Once you cross that threshold, once you say that final yes to Jesus, you will discover what the feeling is that seems to permeate the lives of some Jesus followers. You know what I mean. The kinds of folks who, in spite of life's harsh conditions, in spite of the suffering they've been through, the hardship, they just seem to smile. They just seem to roll with the punches. There's a serenity that surrounds them. You know what that feeling is? Triumph. Triumph. It starts quiet, deep down in the soul, and it bubbles up to the surface in the way that the person smiles, in the way they, they cry and laugh. Triumph. The kind of triumph that only comes from Jesus Christ. When there is nowhere else to turn, when there's nothing else to fall back on, when being right all the time just doesn't matter anymore. When getting our way just doesn't matter. That's freedom. That is freedom. And it only comes when we surrender. The community of Jesus followers that we see in Acts 2 is not interested in pursuing worldly justice in the way that, that we often are. These are not people who are skilled debaters or orators. They aren't authority figures. They aren't trained professionals with degrees. They speak the simple truth that Jesus saves lives. Because they believe it. And because they believe that others can be saved, that fills them with joy and anticipation an eager longing to get the word out there. And that takes surrender. That takes commitment to do things in a new way without any guarantees of personal gratification or justification. It takes putting other people first all the time, not to the point of punishing yourself, Not to the point of being diminished, but to the point of enlarging Jesus Christ. It is completely selfish and yet unashamedly dogged in the pursuit of bringing others to faith. You see, some of them, some had seen 
with their own eyes. And it seems to me I would not be surprised if the memory was still fresh in their minds, if the story was still fresh on their lips. This story of a God who'd come down as man, and instead of choosing to be right, instead of choosing to fight his own corner, instead of choosing to save himself, he gave all that up to die on a cross. He surrendered. That is his way. And that is our way. This month we're, this month we're, we're launching life groups in this church family and more than anything else, this is, a, uh, this is the kind of of honesty. This is the kind of story that is central to what life groups are. It's not just learning the Bible. It's learning how the Holy Spirit is calling us to lay down that stuff that's getting in the way of our relationship with Jesus. And, and it's about sharing in the triumph of daily living in the light of Jesus Christ. It's powerful stuff. It's about testimony. And for the first few months, we'll approach every question from the Bible, or every passage from the Bible with four questions. It's very simple. The first question is this. What is God doing in this story? What's God doing in this story? What are people doing in this story? What am I learning about God in this story? And how is my life going to change what needs to change in my life because of this story? Four question. God's story. What's the human story? What's the learning point? And what's the transformation point in my life? Folks, it's going to require honesty and commitment. It's going to be hard. And we're going to have to love each other in this process. So I'm going to tell you now, there's going to be some stuff that comes out in conversation in these life groups that, that you may never have heard before from some of these people you know. And you may find yourself saying some things you have never said before in a group like this. And we're going to honor that. And we're going to give it over to Jesus. And we're going to allow him to transform us. And that's what this is about. I expect this small group format to be the hardest, costliest Bible study you've ever been part of. And I expect it to be life-changing. And when new people enter the church for the first time, one of the first points of contact will likely be a life group. It will be a place of prayer, of honest conversation, of healing, of repentance, and love and redemption. If you haven't signed up yet, email me. My email is rob at saintsaviors.org.uk Get in touch with me. I'll be meeting with leaders this month as we move forward. So maybe you've wanted to get serious about faith or prayer. Maybe you've had questions about the Holy Spirit. You know, maybe you're anxious about that or interested or this is the place for those questions. Finally, Let's say this. Expect God to do big things in life groups, in your life, in your personal life, in church life. Expect God to do big things when we surrender.
Amen.